0: Are you studying for your board exams and looking for low-cost, high-quality practice questions? Well, look no further than the High Yield Family Medicine Patreon page. For just $5 a month, you'll gain instant access to over 100 board-style practice questions, each complete with detailed explanations and focusing on all the high-yield topics you need to know for test day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your studying and enhance your knowledge and skills in family medicine. Sign up now at patreon.com slash highyieldfamilymedicine. Link in the description. Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of the High Yield Family Medicine Podcast. In this episode, we're going to cover some of the most high-yield things you need to know as it pertains to managing twin pregnancies, or more generally, multiple gestation pregnancies. By the end of this episode, you should have a firm understanding of the terms zygosity, chorionicity, and amnionicity, and how these concepts relate to the various types of twins that can occur, each with their own unique characteristics identifiable on ultrasound. Then, we'll wrap up the episode with some must-know complications of twin pregnancies, some of which are common, And others which are actually very rare in clinical practice yet beloved by test question writers at the NBME. As we make our way through this episode, you'll notice that I place a special emphasis on the anatomy and embryology of the early embryos development. The reason I do this is not to give anyone PTSD thinking about first year embryology, I just want to give you the big picture idea of what is going on within the first week of pregnancy as I believe it will make it way easier when it comes to identifying the differences between the different types of twins on the ultrasound. The reason this matters so much is because some types of twin pregnancies carry much higher risk of complications than others, so it's important that we use our knowledge of early embryonic development in order to help us identify which patients need the closest monitoring. I hope you're as excited as I am to learn about twins today. So let's get started. Let us begin by differentiating between monozygotic versus dizygotic twins. Dizygotic twins, or fraternal twins, are by far and away the most common type of twins and are the result of two different eggs being fertilized by two different sperm, and each of these zygotes are implanted in the uterus during the same cycle. In essence, these zygote pairs are genetically indifferent from any other two siblings who share the same parents with the only difference being that they're both growing inside their mom at the same time. This is in contrast to monozygotic, or identical twins, who are, as the name suggests, essentially genetically identical to each other. I say essentially identical because more recent evidence shows that there are actually quite a few phenotypic and genotypic differences among monozygotic twins due to some mutations that occur in early development. Monozygotic twins are called identical, because they are derived from the same single fertilized ovum. Therefore, they share the same chromosomes that underwent the same unique patterns of chromosomal crossing over during fusion and meiosis. At some point in the development of monozygotic twins, the early embryo is split into two pieces, resulting in the two distinct cell lines developing side by side. Now that we have a good picture of zygosity, let's discuss chorionicity and amnionicity. Chorionicity refers to the number of chorions present in the twin pregnancy. And if you're anything like me when I was a third year student, you're probably wondering, uh, what is a chorion again? Well, for me, the easiest way to think about this is to imagine a chicken egg. On the outside, you have the shell. Then below that, you have the albumin, which is the stuff that turns white when you cook it. And then right in the middle, you have the yolk sac. The eggs we buy in the supermarket don't usually have embryos in them, But if they did, they would be right in the center, cuddled up next to the yolk sac. With both structures enveloped by two membranous layers separating them from the albumen. The outer of these two membranous layers is called the chorion. In humans, the chorion surrounds the embryo and the yolk sac just like it does in chickens. But by around 12 weeks or so, the chorion in humans will go on to fuse with the endometrium in order to form the placenta. So let's think back to dizygotic twins for a moment. When the two fertilized eggs implant into the uterus, they form their own chorions, thus each will go on to form their own placentas as well. Very rarely, dizygotic twins may share a chorion. However, this is the exception rather than the rule. Monozygotic twins, on the other hand, have a much higher chance of sharing the same chorion, and this is a function of how many days after fertilization the early embryo is split in two. If cleavage of the early embryo occurs within the first three days after fertilization, then there will be two separate morulas, and a morula is basically just a solid ball of cells. After day three, each of these morulas will then go on to form their own chorion, thus, they will each go on to have their own placentas. However, if cleavage occurs after day three, then the morula has already grown from a solid clump of cells to become more sphere like with a central cavity and by this time, it is referred to now as a blastocyst. By the time the blastocyst forms, it's too late for each twin to receive their own chorions, and thus they will both be enveloped by a single chorion and then go on to share a single placenta. When monozygotic twins share a placenta, this is known as monochorionic twins, as opposed to dichorionic twins who cleaved prior to day three, and thus each have their own chorions and later their own placentas. As long as cleavage of the early embryo occurs within the first week or so, both monozygotic twins will usually go on to have their own amniotic sacs. Remember when I said earlier that the early embryo and yolk sac are surrounded by two membranes? We already discussed the chorion, which was the outer membrane that appears on day three. But on day eight, we also developed the inner membrane surrounding the embryo, which is known as the amnion. The amnion, or the amniotic sac, is the structure that will eventually house the amniotic fluid. So very briefly, let's just pause to make sure we're keeping track of the embryology here. The chorion is the outer membrane surrounding the embryo, which appears on day three and will later become the placenta, while the amnion is the inner membrane surrounding the embryo, which appears on day eight and will later become the amniotic sac. All right, so far so good. So if the amnion forms on day eight, then let's see what happens if cleavage occurs beyond day 8. If cleavage occurs between days 8 and 13, these twins will go on to share the same amniotic sac as well as already sharing the same placenta. This situation is termed a monochorionic monoamniotic pregnancy and has the highest risk of complications out of any of the major twin variants. You've probably noticed by now that the longer it takes for monozygotic twins to separate, the more anatomy they're going to end up sharing. If they split after day three, then they share a chorion. If they split after day eight, then they share an amnion. Let's stay on this train of thought for a moment and imagine what might happen to an early embryo if after day 13, a partial cleavage were to occur. As you can probably guess, this is actually how conjoined twins occur. When it comes to differentiating between all these various categories of twin pregnancies, Obviously, we're not going to have direct information about just how many eggs were fertilized or which day after fertilization cleavage occurred. Instead, we have to rely on characteristic anatomical differences that are appreciable by ultrasound. But before we discuss the key ultrasound findings, we should first discuss something called the intertwin membrane. The intertwin membrane is a structure separating the two developing embryos and takes on different characteristics on ultrasound depending on the degree of chorionicity and amnionicity of the pregnancy. For the most common type of twin pregnancy, dichorionic, diamniotic, you should be able to identify a thick intertwin membrane separating the twins. This thick intertwin membrane is composed of two chorion layers and two amnion layers, one set from each twin. In addition, you should be able to see the twin peak sign which is a lambda or triangle-shaped structure located at the margin of the intertwin membrane, representing a section of chorion situated snugly between the membrane layers. If the twin peak sign is found, this is highly suggestive of a dichorionic, diamniotic pregnancy. It should be noted that the twin in twin peak sign is not in reference to any discernible feature on ultrasound. Rather, it is in reference to the two gestating twins, opposed to triplets or other higher order pregnancies to which this sign does not apply. Contrast the twin peak sign to the T-sign seen in monochorionic diamniotic twins. The T-sign shows a much thinner intertwin membrane as it's composed of only two amnion layers instead of two amnion and two chorion layers seen in dichorionic diamniotic twins. In addition, There is no chorion visible at the margins because there is only a single chorion enveloping both of the twins. And lastly, there is the monochorionic monoamniotic pregnancy, and based on what we discussed so far about intertwin membranes, can you guess what the ultrasound might look like for a monochorionic monoamniotic pregnancy? Well, if you think about it, they both share the same outer chorion layer as well as the same inner amnion layer so there really is no intertwin membrane separating them at all. Be aware, however, that failing to visualize an intertwin membrane is not diagnostic of a monochorionic monoamniotic pregnancy. Remember that the intertwin membrane in monochorionic diamniotic pregnancies is very thin and thus is not always visible on ultrasounds. So, when differentiating the two, look for the presence of one or two yolk sacs, as monochorionic monoamniotic twins will share a single yolk sac, while monochorionic diamniotic twins will each have their own. Okay, so now that I've hopefully made the anatomy and embryology of the different types of twins a bit more clear, let's discuss a few clinically significant scenarios that you should be aware of. First, on the maternal side. Multiple gestation pregnancies increases the risk for pretty much every complication affecting singleton pregnancies. Including preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, hyperemesis gravidarum, hemorrhage, postpartum depression, etc. For the most part, standard of care of these various ailments in multiple gestation pregnancies is treated the same as it would be for singleton pregnancies. Multiple gestation pregnancies are also at very high risk for preterm labor, with an average time of gestation less than 37 weeks. Therefore, babies born from multiple gestation pregnancies are at higher risk for complications of prematurity, such as increased incidence of respiratory distress and cerebral palsy. Despite this, according to ACOG, asymptomatic women with multiple gestation pregnancies have not been shown to benefit from some of the typical therapies done to prevent preterm labor in high-risk singleton pregnancies, such as cerclage placement for a short cervix or progesterone supplementation. If preterm labor does occur, then standard preterm management is indicated, including short-term tocolytic therapy, corticosteroids for surfactant development if prior to 34 weeks, and fetal neuroprotection using magnesium sulfate if prior to 32 weeks. If you need a refresher on the management of preterm labor or some other various complications of pregnancy, check out episode 5 where we discuss these topics in further detail. Now let's discuss some potential complications on the fetus's side. First is the vanishing twin, where one of the twins will fail to develop very early on in the pregnancy, while the other twin will go on to be just fine. In fact, it's believed that quite a few quote-unquote singleton pregnancies actually occur this way. If one of the twins is miscarried early enough in the pregnancy, it will often be reabsorbed by the body without any issue. However, if the miscarriage of a single twin occurs in the second or third trimesters, This poses a lot more harm to both the mother and the surviving twin, so the next step here would be to closely monitor them both until birth. Twin-to-twin transfusions can occur in monochorionic twins, and the problem here stems from the fact that they both share a single placenta. In twin-to-twin transfusions, the blood vessels are arranged in such a way so as to unevenly divert blood from one fetus to the other. Twin-to-twin transfusions usually develop during the second trimester when placental growth is at its highest and will present with one fetus being small and anemic, while the other fetus is large and polycythemic. The additional strain of excess blood in the recipient twin can result in heart failure and increased urinary output, leading to polyhydromnios, while the donor twin usually dies in utero and has oligohydromnios. Treatment of twin-to-twin transfusions is first to perform serial amniocentesis in the recipient twin so as to limit the amount of polyhydramnios. They can also do an endoscopic ablation of any aberrant blood vessels as a way of limiting the amount of blood the recipient is receiving, and in severe cases, an endoscopic fetoscopy can be done to remove the donor twin. Next are conjoined twins, which, if you'll recall from our discussion on monozygotic twins, occurs when the developing embryo incompletely separates at a time beyond 12 days after fertilization, and as a result, are subsequently joined together. Management of conjoined twins is to surgically separate the babies at birth. However, surgery becomes less and less feasible in cases where the twins are sharing vital organs. There are quite a few other various fetal anomalies that can present in twin pregnancies. However, these are much more low yield, so I won't spend too much time on them. There's the heterotopic pregnancy, which is where a single uterine pregnancy is accompanied by an ectopic pregnancy, and the treatment here is to surgically remove the ectopic pregnancy while leaving the intrauterine pregnancy alone. A partial molar pregnancy is when one twin is normal while the other twin is an incomplete mole, and for this, you would want to closely monitor their pregnancy in hopes of salvaging the normal baby. For more information on molar pregnancies, check out episode 7. And lastly, there's the parasitic twin, which is when one of the twins will fail to develop properly while the other twin continues to grow, resulting in the birth of one developed baby attached to vestigial body parts of the other twin sticking out. This is called parasitic and not conjoined because the vestigial body parts are unable to survive on their own if removed. This is the type of twin you see in the news every so often, when every few years, a baby in India is born with eight limbs, resembling the Hindu goddess Lakshmi, and crowds of people will come to revere the child as a possible reincarnation of the deity. Whether or not this baby is truly a reincarnation is not for me to say, but now you know the embryology about how this occurs. And I think I'll leave it at that for now. I hope you found this episode about twins to be both interesting and informative and I hope you'll stick around now for a few practice questions to help cement all the information we covered. Question one. A 24-year-old woman comes to your office after a positive home pregnancy test. Her LMP was 10 weeks ago, and you decide to do an ultrasound. As you scan with your probe, you note two viable intrauterine embryos, each with their own respective yolk sacs. However, you are unable to identify an intertwin membrane. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, a dichorionic-diamniotic pregnancy. B, a monochorionic-diamniotic pregnancy. C, a dichorionic-monoamniotic pregnancy. Or D, a monochorionic-monoamniotic pregnancy. Answer, B a monochorionic diamniotic pregnancy. In the most common type of twin pregnancy, dichorionic diamniotic, the ultrasound will typically show a thick intertwin membrane composed of two chorion layers and two amnion layers. Contrast this to the much more rare monochorionic monoamniotic pregnancy, which is characterized by the absence of an intertwin membrane. This patient is 10 weeks pregnant with twins. you are unable to identify an intertwin membrane making you suspicious of a possible monochorionic monoamniotic pregnancy however remember that in monochorionic diamniotic pregnancies the intertwin membrane is very thin and composed of only two amnion layers and thus is commonly missed on ultrasound the key here in this scenario is that each embryo has their own yolk sac which is a finding not seen in monochorionic monoamniotic pregnancies. Thus, this pregnancy is most likely monochorionic diamniotic. Question two, a 21-year-old G2P0 woman at 20 weeks gestation comes to your office to establish care. She recently emigrated from Honduras and when asked about her current pregnancy, the only information she was given by the doctor in her hometown is that she is pregnant with twins, one boy and one girl. She has no complaints and is otherwise healthy. Which of the following is true about this pregnancy? A, this type of pregnancy is at highest risk for twin-to-twin transfusion. B, a pelvic ultrasound of this patient will likely reveal the twin peak sign. C, prophylactic penicillin should be administered at this visit. Or D, both fetuses will likely be born at full term with no complications. Answer, B, a pelvic ultrasound of this patient will likely reveal the twin peak sign. This woman with twins is carrying a boy and a girl fetus. This pretty much narrows down the diagnosis of a dichorionic-diamniotic pregnancy, which is by far and away the most common type and is often associated with a twin peak sign on ultrasound representing a thick intertwin membrane and a section of chorion visible at the margin in a lambda or triangle shape. Twin-to-twin transfusions can be seen in monochorionic twins as a shared placenta places them at risk for uneven distribution of blood flow. Intrapartum penicillin is recommended for group B strep prophylaxis, and should be given to all women who at 35 weeks were found to have rectovaginal colonization of group B strep, as well as for women whose group B strep status is unknown, or if they had previous pregnancies affected by group B strep. This woman is healthy at 20 weeks gestation, so penicillin is not indicated. And most multiple gestation pregnancies are delivered before 37 weeks, so it is unlikely for this pregnancy to reach full term. Question 3. A 25-year-old G2P0 woman carrying a dichorionic-diamniotic pregnancy at 20 weeks gestation comes to your office as part of her routine prenatal care. She has no complaints, and all of her recent labs and imaging studies are within normal limits, except for a short cervix which was incidentally identified on ultrasound. The patient asks you what should be done about her short cervix. Which of the following is the most appropriate recommendation? A. Placement of a cerclage, B. Topical vaginal progesterone, C. Weekly intramuscular administration of progesterone, brand name McKenna, or D. Expectant management. Answer, D. Expectant management. Cerclage placement and or progesterone supplementation are both options to prevent preterm labor in high-risk singleton pregnancies However, none of these interventions have shown any benefit in preventing preterm labor in asymptomatic multiple gestation pregnancies. Question 4. A 34-year-old woman carrying a monochorionic diamniotic pregnancy at 24 weeks gestation presents to your office for a routine prenatal visit. On ultrasounds, it is found that one fetus no longer has a heartbeat, while the other fetus has an amniotic fluid index greater than 25 centimeters. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Serial amniocentesis of the living fetus. B. Endoscopy to ablate aberrant blood vessels in the placenta. C. Endoscopy and fetoscopy to remove the nonviable fetus. Or D. Expectant management with close monitoring. Answer A. Serial amniocentesis of the living fetus. This ultrasound finding is highly suggestive of twin-to-twin transfusion, which is a risk associated with monochorionic twins. The first step in management of twin-to-twin transfusions is to relieve the polyhydramnios of the recipient fetus, and in more severe cases, you may use endoscopy to ablate the aberrant blood vessels or even remove the non-viable fetus in a procedure known as fetoscopy. You definitely don't want to watch and wait for twin-to-twin transfusions, as delaying treatment is almost always lethal for both twins.